My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talkless Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texaspluswater.org, and you can sign up for the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. Both publications are free. My guest today is Professor Monty Mills, director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the University of Montana School of Law in Missoula, Montana. Previously, Monty directed the legal department for the Southern Ute Indian Tribe in Colorado. Monty is also author of a book that was published in July with the title, A Third Way, Decolonizing the Laws of Indigenous Cultural Protection, which he published with Hilary Hoffman uh, through Cambridge University Press. Monty, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thanks, Todd. Pleasure to be here. So let's start out with your background in water. How did you first become involved with water? Well, I've been fortunate to grow up and live in some of the greatest river basins in the western United States, including along the Roaring Fork River when I was a child in Colorado, and then along the San Juan in the southwest as I um, came of age. I went to school in the northwest, so I got to spend some time on the Columbia, and so I guess I've always been interested in water, water rights, and issues related to natural resource management. That's kind of what led me to law school. And after law school, I was fortunate enough to work with the Southern Ute Indian tribe and was peripherally involved in some of their water rights at the time. They were, during the time I was there, at least just wrapping up the concluding uh, the issues with regard to the settlement of their water rights and the construction of the Animus La Plata project there um, in southwestern Colorado. So it was a, it was an interesting way to learn about some of the complexities of tribal water law settlements. And even though I wasn't directly involved in that, um, really piqued my interest for working with water law and, and particularly the rights of Indian tribes as they assert claims to water across the West and really across the nation. So, you know, in regard to that, you know, it, it occurs to me that I've seen a lot of news about um, litigation involving Indian tribes in the Western United States over the last year or two. And so I'm you know, curious, so have we entered into a period where uh, uh, Indian water law is receiving more attention or, or what would you describe what's going on? Yeah, I think certainly the attention that was drawn to protests surrounding the Dakota Access Pipeline back in 2016 and really worldwide attention to tribal activists and um, the concerns they raised about protecting the water there. Um, I think that that brought a lot of people into these issues, if not in a, in a really deeply substantive way, at least I think folks became more aware of them. I mean, it, w- it was the case that Water is Life was sort of the organizing call uh, for those uh, issues. So I think I think that kind of drew some attention, and and particularly recently, you know, in this summer of of reckoning with racial justice and really the assertion by tribes and tribal people of long time historic claims to these resources that's generating a lot more attention um, not just from sort of outside communities but on the part of tribes themselves so it does feel like there's there's certainly much more um, awareness at least of these issues although I will say really, 
since time immemorial, the claims of tribes to utilize and manage natural resources have existed. And even in historic times, conflicts over water and water use during the homesteading era and, and even thereafter were um, pretty pretty monumental. And I think folks paid attention to them then. So it's certainly a new era, but they're not new issues. So uh, I, I know a little bit uh, about uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. I was one of the two finalists for the program chair for the Missouri River Recovery Implementation Committee. And I had my interview uh, in Omaha and, you know, flew up to Omaha. And before I got there, I got this email that said, just want you to know there may be a protest and, you know, some other things. And I was like, oh, okay. I had no idea that, that, uh, you know, that you know, was kind of tied up in that same issue about the Missouri River. But um, I learned that when I got up there. And so, uh, you know, that one is, of course, a, an issue that, that people, you know, probably across the country, everybody has heard something about that. Uh, and there are other ones as well. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, at least when I hear about, uh, you know, uh, tribal nations and, and water rides for, for reservations, you know, the impression I get is that, you know, the U S has done a, you know, poor job of, of honoring many of these treaties and, um, you know, it's created these conflicts or, I mean, there are any, I guess, examples of that, that you can, you can discuss. Sure. Plenty. Unfortunately, I think, you know, the, the history and really understanding tribal claims to water rights is bound up in the history of the nation. And really, treaties play a central role in understanding that history and, and are central to understanding tribal claims. It was the case that really before the United States even existed, treaties were the mechanism through which European colonizers engaged with tribal folks who were already here. And in doing so, sort of brought these tools of international law and recognized these tribes on a sovereign to sovereign basis. And that was really the the method that was adopted by the founders of the United States and and really through those treaties formed a bond between the federal government and tribal nations that really connected uh, tribal nations to the constitutional system. Otherwise, they're entirely outside of it as sovereign in and of themselves. Unfortunately, though, given other priorities of the United States and the desire to acquire land and other resources, those promises made in those treaties are often sort of set aside and excluded. And really, it's it's a story that's nearly universal across every tribal nation. And unfortunately, I think that has had significant implications, especially in the modern era, for water rights associated with those treaty promises, particularly because, I mean, at a, at a very general level, the, the story is mostly the same, that the United States made certain promises, tribes reserved certain rights and resources in those treaties. And for the most part, those promises were either expressly broken or simply ignored and set aside in the name of the development of resources for primarily non-Indian settlers and citizens. 
And yet those treaties and promises still remain and are still important and powerful as a legal matter. And now that tribes begin to reassert those rights, the practical consequences to sort of established expectations on the part of the federal government and states and non-Indian citizens can really create some some complexities. Um, so that was true at Dakota Access. It's true really across the West, especially as water resources are becoming more scarce. Um, we've seen, for example, claims to groundwater in Southern California on behalf of the Agua Caliente. Um, a, a number of tribes have, have worked with states and federal counterparts to settle those claims. Um, and yet we've seen decades of litigation as well um, in Wyoming, for example, in Arizona, where tribes have sought to pursue and, and litigate and defend those historical claims. So, yeah, I think the, the the general story has been sort of the exclusion and marginalization of tribal interests in the name of states and non-Indian citizens. And now tribes are relying on those treaty promises to reassert their claim. So two of those cases uh, that I guess you refer to in, in general, but more specifically that I hear a lot about are the, is it Winans? Is that pronounced correctly? Winans That's correct. Yep. And Winters. Those two cases, I've, I've seen a lot of articles about those in the last year or two. Yeah, I mean, those two cases are really foundational to understanding uh, Indian water rights or tribal claims. And I should pause just for a moment to for folks who may may not be familiar with the area and may have questions about the terms we use, whether it's Indian or Native American or tribes or even indigenous. The term Indian is a legal term of art. It's defined under federal law, and and generally the area of law is called federal Indian law. So you'll hear me use the term Indian. Um, but oftentimes, individual folks will say that's inappropriate, it's inaccurate, it's disrespectful. And so particular tribal nations or indigenous or Native American may be a, a more appropriate term. But um, for purposes of thinking about Indian water law as a, as a legal concept, both Winans and Winters are, are central. And they're not new cases. Winans was decided in 1905 by the United States Supreme Court and Winters shortly after in 1908. And in each of them, really, the Supreme Court recognized and upheld the rights reserved either expressly in a treaty, that was the case of Winans, or implied by the creation of a reservation, that was Winters, um, for tribes to have access to and, and use water. Um, and they're critical because in that time frame, in the early 1900s, it was the heart of the westward expansion and assimilation and allotment efforts on the part of the federal government, all of which were designed to break up tribal communities and destroy tribal cultures and really assimilate tribal people into broader American society. And yet the Supreme Court in both Winans and Winters laid down important legal foundations for preserving and protecting both historical treaty promises that were made to the Yakima Nation in Winans and the rights of tribes to access water necessary to fulfill the purposes of their homeland. So in the case of Winters, for example, which arose here in Montana, the Supreme Court took a look at uh, an action by the federal government to establish a reservation. And even though nothing in what Congress did said anything about water, 
the court recognized and interpreted that action to mean that in order for the tribe to continue to reside on this piece of land, they would need water to survive. And therefore, water came along with that reservation, was implied by that federal action. That had important consequences because particularly in the West's uh, water system, which are dependent on prior appropriation and senior water dates, sort of trumping later water dates, that meant that the date of the reservation was the tribe's priority date, which Mm. put it really first in line over non-Indian homesteaders who showed up later. It also established it as a federal water right, not necessarily subject to state law, which also had important consequences down the road. So both Winans and Winters, even though now over almost a century and a quarter old, are still really core to the claims and rights asserted by tribes today because they provide that important legal foundation and protection for historical um, rights reserved by tribes and treaties and recognized by the federal government in the creation of reservations. Well, I can see how that would complicate things if you you all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, recognize a senior water right uh, in a basin, and uh, you know somebody somebody who all of a sudden now is junior, um, you know, trying to figure out what the implications are for their water use and all that. Um, is that is essentially what has happened in Montana? Well, yes and no. I mean, what despite the Winters and Winans doctrines, and despite their power and potential, the sort of practical development of water rights and settlement across the West really left those decisions aside. And so even though tribes had these oftentimes most senior claims to water, really much of the river basins, both here in Montana and elsewhere across the West, were developed by non-Indians and settlers and other folks coming to the region oftentimes with the support of the federal government through, for example, reclamation projects authorized under the 1902 Reclamation Act and the support of state law systems, which sort of set aside tribal rights. So really for the first half, if not more, of the 20th century, those powerful legal claims and doctrines were sort of ignored Um, and kind of consistent with our discussion about treaties and sort of how those have been used or not used or relied on or set aside by the United States, really the development of water resources and therefore water claims and rights set aside the presence of tribes almost entirely. And in the early 1970s, for example, there was a a comprehensive study of the state of water in the country that was commissioned by Congress. And in the context of that report, tribal water rights were sort of assessed. And one of the things that report said, which is sort of a, a famous discussion of, of these issues, was that among the many sorry chapters of the nation's treatment of indigenous people, the marginalization of their claims to water in the early 20th century was one of the darkest. So while it certainly could have complicated things had those rights been honored in the beginning of the 20th century, the fact that they were ignored and marginalized made it all the much more complex when tribes are now coming back in the later half of the 1900s and certainly in the early part of the 2000s so far and asserting these oftentimes senior, oftentimes significant rights to water 
especially now in the era of climate change and increasing scarcity and the population explosion, particularly here in the in the American West, there isn't as much water, period. And right. tri- tribes are able to, to assert oftentimes um, sort of predominant and supreme claims. So that makes it even harder, I think, and even more complicated to incorporate, honor, and align those legal claims with the practical use and expectation and reliance that has built up over the last century or so. And so kind of thinking about those agreements, I imagine, you know, of course, most of them probably didn't say anything about water. And the the issues that arose early on were probably about surface water. I mean, they, I can't imagine they said anything about groundwater. And now I, I imagine that there probably are, you know, a whole, um, you know, a uh, slew of issues regarding groundwater they're popping up too. Is that, is that um, something that you've observed? Yeah. And, and you're exactly right that oftentimes, whether in a treaty or in a congressional act setting aside a reservation for a tribe, water wasn't mentioned at all. Um, you know, in the context of a treaty, there may be tribal rights to fish or to hunt or to gather that implicates the use and protection of water. But it doesn't say that the tribe is entitled to water in many instances. And in the context of setting aside a reservation, as in the Winters case, for example, the language will say, if anything, that this reservation is being set aside for the use of this tribe and maybe to become a I think the language in that particular agreement was a pastoral and civilized people, which was consistent with sort of the federal policy, but didn't say anything about water. So the the challenge under the Winters and Winans doctrines has been the implication, the implied rights to water and how to define what those mean. Well, as you point out, that's mostly meant surface water, but isn't limited to surface water at all. And in fact, most recently, at least in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here in the West, um, they were considering claims by the Agua Caliente Band down in Palm Springs area, Southern California, who had asserted based on the Winters doctrine that they had rights to groundwater in the same way they would have rights to surface water because their reservation having been set aside through executive orders of the president and the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, they needed water to fulfill the purposes of that reservation. And in the same way the tribe in Winters was able to assert that same need, what the tribe in Agua Caliente said was, and that doesn't mean just surface water, that could mean groundwater too. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed and said, that's exactly right. Under the Winters Doctrine, there isn't a limitation on it being surface water only. And if groundwater is necessary to fulfill the purposes of this reservation, then the tribe has an implied right to groundwater as well. So that, w- that was an important decision, not because it broke sort of radical, logical ground. It makes perfect sense, but it really was the first sort of formal recognition by a federal appellate court, at least, of tribal rights to groundwater. That being said, there have been settlements of tribal claims that have included rights to groundwater. There have been some state court actions that have recognized sort of the similar doctrine, but that is sort of the most recent and kind of clearest statement that tribal reserved rights under the Winters Doctrine can include groundwater in the same way that they can include rights to surface water. 
So just kind of you know, thinking about timelines here, I, I imagine most of these treaties were um, executed in the 1800s, you know, maybe late 1800s or mid 1800s. And then you you have the Supreme Court case that you mentioned in 1905, which is, you know, for folks in Texas who are involved with water, that's a, a big year for the Texas Supreme Court to rule on groundwater um, uh, use. And then, um, you know, going forward, I mean, you really don't have the, uh, the, you know, technology available to extract groundwater, you know, cheaply until, you know, really kind of the beginning of World War II, maybe the late thirties or something. And then, you know, kind of the 1940s, you see that it's become, the technology's become cheap enough that that people are, are regularly using it for farming and, and things like that. And so, you know, these these are, you know, clearly agreements that uh, were created when, um, you know, you had different issues surrounding the, you know, what the law for groundwater uh, regulation was because, you know, change in a lot of places from from more or less a rural capture to 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 correlative rights or you know something else. And then right. the technology comes along where people really start using groundwater and now it's impacting surface water. And so so it's it's complicated and just thinking just thinking about um you know the, the cases you that you mentioned, you know, you know, each of those states has their own twist on surface and groundwater management. But Many of them have compacts with other states on the use of water. So how how does that all get figured out? I mean, because you may have a, a ruling um, that affects a certain state, and now their, I guess, uh, uh, water sharing agreements might be uh, – uh, impacted between other states um through federal compacts etc so so how, how can how can you even straighten that out it's so complicated yeah i'm i'm not sure i can straighten all <laughs> that out it is very very complicated and and you've hit on really the the fundamental challenge here which is that whether because of changing technology or changing laws or differences in the way states have addressed water rights it is really hard to incorporate historic rights reserved, you know, 200 years ago, potentially, into the modern era and do so in a way that really honors and protects their preeminent legal standing. That's really the fundamental challenge here. And um, there are a couple of things that I think are important in the context of how tribal rights are dealt with both within states and then among states. First of all, in, in the in the 50s, Congress passed a, a law that basically said federal rotter rights are to be adjudicated in state court systems. That's the McCarran Amendment. And after a couple of legal challenges, the Supreme Court determined that that could include tribal water rights. So for purposes of sort of continuity and comprehensive adjudication, generally tribal and federal water rights are adjudicated on the same basis in the same procedures as other state water rights. So that at least provides some connection between these sort of 
supreme federal claims and the state water system. But importantly, that doesn't mean that tribal water rights are necessarily limited by the application of state law, because as sort of federal rights, they, for example, aren't subject to abandonment as other state water rights might be. But nonetheless, that McCarran Amendment adjudication process provides some basis for incorporating tribal rights into state systems. Um, as you point out, particularly in the context of groundwater, tribal claims to groundwater, which are, at least according to the Ninth Circuit, analyzed and may depend on the Winters Doctrine, that doesn't really take into account correlative use rights or sort of prior appropriation or other schemes. And that's an area where there may be and has been conflict between the sort of federal nature of the winter's right claim and a state groundwater system. And that isn't even into, to get into the complexities of quantification or quality or protection of the aquifer or sort of all the related complexity of what those claims to groundwater may entail. So all of those raise their own set of, of complicated issues. And then in the context of sort of intrastate relations, um, in fact, one of the one of the sort of preeminent tribal water law cases is Arizona versus California from 1964, which was really the first time that the Winters Doctrine came back up to the Supreme Court and was really sort of reinvigorated in the mid-1900s. And one of the central questions there was in the context of the Colorado Basin, um, how tribal rights would be deducted or accounted for among the upper basin and lower basin states who had a compact for who got what and how the water, well, how they thought the water that was available would be allocated. Turns out their calculations from 1922 were a bit off. But the the court addressed there that um, those tribal rights weren't subject to apportionment, at least uh, among those different states, and really wrestled with those challenges of where there are interstate compacts, how tribal rights sort of fit in among all of that complexity. So you're exactly right that it is it can be sort of overlapping layers of complexity and complication um, when these when these rights are asserted, and um, that oftentimes depends on the approach of the tribe and the federal government as sort of the tribe's trustee and whether or not they seek to litigate those rights through the state court system, maybe even pursue federal sort of backstop litigation to protect those rights or seek some type of settlement pursuant to which the tribes can actually get water. Because that's really the the fundamental challenge here is that notwithstanding these strong legal rights, all of these complexities posed by the marginalization of those rights, the need to quantify state legal systems, different standards, interstate compacts, that can mean that decades go by before the tribe is able to actually get water that it needs to fulfill those purposes of those historic agreements. And so um, oftentimes settlement becomes uh, not an easier way, but at least a, a, a maybe more efficient way than pursuing litigation around all of these complexities. Well, you know, just kind of thinking about that a little bit, I mean, I imagine that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, when a tribe might get water rights they might still be able to to lease them or something and to supply for some existing uses i mean that way they're at least getting some income off of of 
of their rights. Um, and so it may not, I guess in a lot of cases, you know, it may not just mean that, okay, the water's now going to be used for this altogether different purpose. Um, it, it might be more in some cases of a situation where, okay, we recognize that this is somebody else's use of fructory right or, or actual property right. And, you know, they should be compensated if they want to lease you some water. Yeah. And in fact, uh, that type of flexibility and sort of tribes' interests in either use or development or keeping water in the stream and the, the legal nature of those tribal rights sort of being outside the state restrictions gives tribes more flexibility to to think about those options. And in fact, um, just this week, I think there was le- uh, legislation introduced um, on behalf of tribes in Arizona about leasing water rights there predominantly to allow for tribal water to make up the shortages that are inherent now in sort of the Colorado River system. And in fact, um, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, it was the agreement of the tribes in that region to contribute some of their water rights that really allowed the intrastate and sort of intragovernmental agreement around drought contingency planning to succeed. And so I think you're exactly right that there are, there are more options for tribes to pursue in terms of how to either protect, use, or utilize these claims. And that that opens the door to kind of rethinking what the future of water rights and water use, particularly in the West, where water is so scarce, might look like. And frankly, because tribes have these rights and are engaged in this type of thinking and leadership, they really have an important role to play in how the state of water law moves forward. So my uh, previous guest, uh, Abby Andre, uh, talked about the Supreme Court makeup and what she thought it you know, would mean for environmental law going forward. And so, you know, just kind of ask you kind of the same question about um, Indian law, Indian water right law, there was a major case, I know it's not a water law case, but a major case having to do with Oklahoma here recently. Uh I mean, are there there any trends that you see with the Supreme Court now in in these subjects? Yeah, I I hesitate to say it's a trend in favor of recognizing tribal rights for risk of jinxing it. But I will say, unlike much of the recent era, um, the most recent Supreme Court decisions, um, at least over the last three or four years, have really looked back to and relied on those foundational federal Indian law principles that were at the heart of Winans and at the heart of Winters. And even before that, in the Supreme Court's sort of earliest decisions from the 1830s about federal Indian law. And in doing so, they've relied on rules for how treaties are to be interpreted and recognized and upheld that unless Congress has expressly and specifically done away with uh, those rights or those treaties, then those rights remain. And with Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor, and there's there's clearly a core uh, makeup on the court who are committed to those principles, whether that means that that 
is a trend that's going to carry through, I think remains to be seen. But certainly in these recent cases, they have consistently relied on and applied those foundational federal Indian law um, concepts. So I think that that is really hopefully telling about where the future may be going and certainly a change from, say, the Rehnquist court, where a number of folks analyzing their decisions recognized that they were not relying and often setting aside some of those foundational principles in the name or service of of other interests that were at stake. So, you know, kind of starting to um, uh, wrap up a little bit here, um, one of the questions I want to make sure I ask you about is the role that tribes play or can play in the restoration of rivers and watersheds. So, you know, recently, I, you know, I think a lot of people missed this. It was a an agreement on the removal of the four dams on the Klamath River. I mean, you know, there have been, you know, previous agreements, but now there's one uh, that allows everything to go forward. And as I understand, the, the Yurok, uh, Klamath, and Karak tribes were all part of that agreement. Um, and so, I, you know, my question is – do you think that um, we're going to see, you know, additional efforts um, involving tribes or reach agreements on the restoration of rivers and watersheds that, you know, may or may not involve removing dams, things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think consistent with um, tribal efforts all along there and given the nature and, and potential power of tribal claims to water, I think tribes are going to be more and more in leadership positions to come up with and ensure creative solutions to these challenges. In the Klamath, it's been a long, long standing um, fight over keeping water in the river for the fisheries and, you know, maintaining the the salmon downstream and the tribes that you mentioned are, have been critical in asserting their rights to keep water flowing through that whole basin to preserve those fisheries, which are an important and central part of their continuing lifeway and traditional existence. So that's, that's one example, but I think you see examples really all over the place where the assertion of these water rights by tribes not only serve to protect their own interests in terms of access or protecting water in the in the streams, but also broader interests as well. And we talked about Dakota Access earlier, but that's another crystal clear example where tribal claims and, and connections to the water source also ignited a number of other interests in support of those um, assertions. And we've seen it elsewhere in the context of water settlements as well. Given the nature of tribal water rights and the potential for negotiating, you mentioned the possibility of leases, but also the use of groundwater and even the way in which water rights could be managed under the terms of a settlement, that has opened the door for the negotiation of innovative solutions, often led by tribes, to changing the way water is managed really to benefit everybody in the in the community. And 
The most recent example of that is, again, here in Montana and the water compact negotiated by and between the state of Montana and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes of the Flathead Reservation and the United States. And that's awaiting congressional approval. But because of the tribal claims to water and their sort of leadership in working through what not just what those rights are and how they can use them, but what the future of water management on the reservation might be, that compact includes a, a really creative approach to intergovernmental management of the rights and really serves to restore the historical hydrology of the area that for the most part was destroyed by the construction of irrigation dams and you know a whole irrigation system that really dried up a lot of the rivers and streams that were flowing through the area so i think you you're seeing examples everywhere really of that type of innovation that type of sort of tribally culturally oftentimes based approach to utilizing their legal claims to restore and protect water resources that serve not only their interests but really help benefit um, broader communities as well you know there, we talked a little bit about climate change at the beginning but you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is, you know, I think that we're we're in this renaissance in terms of how we think about floodplains and wellings. And, you know, we're in the process, I see, of, you know, changing how we manage those areas in part because, you know, of the just massive amount of 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 destruction Uh um, by these larger storms it's you know you know people are being killed in those storms and you know they're you know billions of dollars of damages um from the flooding that results and you know also you know how well you know one of the solutions for, for, for climate change um in addition to helping with flooding is restoration of rivers you know and 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 wetlands, which are, you know, sinks for carbon. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I look at those things and I, and I see what's happening, you know, with the Klamath river and, and out West with, um, um, you know, Indian water law. And I, and I wonder, you know, how those, you know, might connect in the future. It's not really a question because I don't know, yep. I don't know if anyone ever answered that, but, but, but I don't know. I'm just curious. You see any trends like that that might seem seemingly come together? Um, yeah, so- a- absolutely. I mean, certainly there is a need for new solutions and new approaches and new ways to protect, preserve, and restore, whether it's wetlands and, and marshlands or in-stream flows or even just to have more water available. And a number of people are sort of studying and trying to understand that more deeply, including my colleague at the University of Idaho, just over the hill here, Dylan Hedden Nicely, who's written quite a bit about sort of the connection between climate change and, and tribal water right claims. But I mean, to me, the clearest sort of example of that is thinking about from a legal perspective, all of the laws and doctrines that have been developed to address how manner how water is managed and used. And for the most part, the core of all of those doctrines, at least west of the 100th meridian, date back to the prior appropriation, homesteading, 
mining development era of the West. And all of the policies embedded in, say, the prior appropriation doctrine were focused on incentivizing, enhancing, and supporting the acquisition, use, and development of this resource. And that doesn't seem to be policy that we can survive with much longer. So where tribes are stepping forward and saying, well, we have a different relationship with this resource. And we have these claims based on the Western legal system that give us certain rights to assert that ensure we can either manage or use or have rights to this particular resource, then they're able to step forward and say, well, what if we did take the dams out and left water in the stream? Or what if we manage the the resource in a way that isn't primarily focused on putting as much of it as possible to beneficial use as soon as possible so that we can protect our rights. And I think it's that potential, that opportunity that really opens the door to creative solutions for solving, not solving, but mitigating at least, and, and maybe opening up a new era of water resource management in the future that really does respond better to the current challenges posed by climate change. Yeah, you, you know, that's a whole, that's an idea for another program is to have a discussion about the future of prior appropriation or something else. But, you know, I've always, I mean, my observations have been that, um, you know, it, it's a powerful system and it could be altered to produce different kinds of outcomes. Um and, you know, that, that that really should be given some consideration, because if you think about, you know, jettisoning a system like that that's been in place for so long and you have rights tied up with long term contracts and bonds have been issued for all sorts of projects. And, you know, just the you know, it seems like, you know, it might be uh, easier and faster to just you know, kind of revisit some of the, um, uh, you know, types of incentives involved. Um, because, you know, my, my impression is there are a lot of people who are, you know, happy to lease water for, you know, storage to provide water during a drought for, you know, a, strain segment that's got an endangered species in it or, or, or something like that, that, you know, they, that they're willing to diversify, you know, the, the potential uses for that war. But, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. And I, and I think the challenge in this current era is recognizing, understanding and considering potentially reconsidering the policies that underlay that legal system, right? And if the policies are shifted, and, and we've seen that shift through the you know development in various states and the protection of in-stream flows, and as you say, leasing or water bank programs that really are sort of focused differently, even within the existing structure, but sort of rethinking the policy that for a long time, at least in my perspective, has just sort of been assumed to be the right thing to do. Right. That's really where I think there's the potential then to reshape how, even if prior appropriation remains, how it's used and how it's applied and to what ends it really serves the broader good. You put your finger right on it. Um, so with that, uh, Monty, uh, please 
tell our listeners how they can find out more about the uh, Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the University of Montana School of Law. Yeah, sure. Well, we are the the oldest Indian law clinic in the country. We have third-year law students who uh, are engaged in work both here in Montana and elsewhere across the region and sometimes across the nation on behalf of um, Indian tribes and their people. And we're here on the University of Montana School of Law's website if you want to learn more about the work that we're doing, our clinical program. And you can find information about me on there too, if you want to look up my background as well. So um, love to connect with folks if they're interested in what the clinic's doing or uh, issues that may be out there that we can help with. And and tell us a little bit about your book before we go. Yeah, sure. Well, it, it's really uh, focused sort of more on cultural protection and, and the various laws that have been developed. But some of the themes, in fact, most of the themes are consistent with the issues we talked about today, which is um, really the central thesis of the book is that tribes are beginning to reshape the legal system in a way that really does better align with their own cultural perspectives. And that's the third way, at least as as my co-author Hillary Hoffman and I envision it, that the future really does pretend tribal leadership and tribal voices um, reforming the legal system that for so long has sort of been imposed and oppressed upon them. And this that book sort of focuses on um, issues, say, of, of uh, cultural protection around National Historic Preservation Act or the Antiquities Act. Um, but I think you can see some of the same concepts in our discussion about water rights today. Great. Great. Monty, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. It was great. This has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Professor Monty Mills, director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the University of Montana School of Law in Missoula, Montana. If you enjoyed this episode of Talkless Water, why not give it a like? Uh, (laughs) Would it kill you? You know, I'm just Uh, My name is Todd Botler. Let's talk water again soon.